Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Welcome. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. I want to welcome you and thank you for uh, joining today's conversation uh, with Norm Ornstein, uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison, and Judge Stephen Leifman. Um, the topic is going to be on mental health and the criminal justice system. I think all of us are aware of the crisis in, in public safety. There's frustration and anger in the community. There's frustration and anger among the uh, police officers and the public, uh, the public safety uh, system. We need solutions. That's what makes today's conversation so important and valuable. Um, and so I'd like to tell you a little bit about some of the people who are gonna be joining us and also to thank the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Minnesota and the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts, John Coleman, for helping us with this program. We're being joined, as I said, by the Attorney General, Keith Ellison. He's the 30th Attorney General. He was uh, sworn in on January 7th, 2019. Before that, he served in the United States Congress from the 5th District in Minnesota. And before that, he was in the Minnesota House of Representatives. Um, we're also joined by uh, Steve Leifman, who is an Associate administrative judge for the 11th Judicial Circuit of the Court of Florida. He served as a special advisor in criminal justice and mental health for the Supreme Court of Florida since 2007. He is well known around the country for his efforts to keep mentally ill individuals out of prisons and jails. And I think you're gonna be absolutely blown away by the, uh, the pioneering work that uh, Judge Leifman has been involved with. And then I wanna introduce um, a good friend of mine and of the Humphrey School and the University of Minnesota, Norm Ornstein, who's a senior fellow emeritus from the American Enterprise Institute. Um, he is um, well known and highly regarded uh, for his commentary on politics and elections in the United States Congress. If there's been a good idea to reform Congress, usually Norm Ornstein has been part of it. And um, if we had another two hours, he could tell you about them, but we don't. Um, he is uh, currently working on a project called Continuity of, of Government Commission. Uh, that's very important if, in case we had a disruption because of a terrorist attack or a pandemic. He's also hard at work on filibuster reform, which I hope to be hearing more about in the future. Um, for me personally, Norm Ornstein is a model of someone who is serious about analysis and is also serious about being engaged. He is also a graduate at the University of Minnesota. As an undergraduate, he graduated at the age of 14. Excuse me, he graduated high school at the age of 14. He graduated the University of Minnesota at the age of 18. Quite remarkable. I'm thrilled that we're joined by Keith Ellison, the Attorney General of the state of Minnesota, a former Congressman. Anybody who knows Keith knows of his passionate commitment to social justice and to making 
of the criminal justice system and the society work for everybody in Minnesota. And uh, we'll see whether there are elements here that can bring us together uh, with best practices that we can share and spread. Uh, and of course, we're also joined by uh, the incredible Steve Leifman, uh, Judge Leifman, let me turn it over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Norm. Thank you, uh, General. We really appreciate you being here. Um, I thought what I'd do is just start briefly with a little bit more of an overview of the work that we're doing. We often joke that we are a 21-year overnight success. Uh, this is work that um, takes time, um, but it is extraordinarily rewarding uh, because it works. Um, as mentioned in the documentary, uh, for me, it started because of the case I had, a very sad case. Uh, the defendant turned out to be a Harvard-educated psychiatrist who worked at our public hospital, who had a late onset of schizophrenia and became homeless and started to recycle through our criminal justice system. And when he came to my court, he ended up having a full-blown psychotic episode. He started screaming at the top of his lungs that his real parents had died in the Holocaust. And the couple who were in court, which were his parents, uh, they were imposters from the CIA and they had come to kill him. And we had no training as judges at the time. The only thing that I was taught to do is that if someone was acting uh, strange or bizarre, what are a psychological evaluation? Frankly, I wasn't even taught what to do once the evaluation came back with the individual. My hope was I was going to be able to get him into some kind of treatment. So he was in on a misdemeanor, some ridiculous low-level offense. And um, he ended up spending 10 to 12 weeks on possession of a dairy cart. Uh, a lot of homeless people get caught up on those types of uh, local ordinances. And um, all three evaluations said that he was incompetent to stand trial and that he met Florida's very high standard for uh, civil commitment. And when I went to get him committed, I found out I had no legal authority uh, to get him treated. And my only option at that point was to release him back to the street, floridly psychotic, dangerous to self or others, and there was nothing I could do to help him. And I, you know, none of us become judges to be part of that kind of problem. And it really opened up this window to everything that was wrong with our system. And, uh, you know, I put him at risk. I put the community at risk. I probably put my job at risk, but I followed the law and the law just didn't work. And so what we did, and I recommend this to everybody, is we had a summit in 2000 where we brought all the traditional and non-traditional stakeholders together for a two-day summit. And I think, you know, one of the good things uh, being a judge or an attorney general, um, when you invite people to meetings, they come even if they don't want to be there. And we invited all of these folks that normally didn't sit around and talk about these issues to this two-day meeting and we brought outside facilitators and we literally mapped out over a two day period, the intersection between our criminal justice system and our community mental health system. And frankly, what we found is that we were embarrassingly dysfunctional. In fact, I remember at some point in our summit, looking at each other and asking who's more sick. These poor souls that have these diagnosable, very serious mental illnesses that didn't ask for this, or us folks that were supposedly sane and healthy who had designed and developed a system to fail and it failed brilliantly. And we realized that we needed to take a different approach. And this is really about systematic change. This was not about setting up a mental health court. 
It's almost the least of what we do was making structural change because what you find after being on the bench as many years as I have, which I think is about 24 years at this point, is in many ways, the criminal justice system is the repository of failed public policies. And we weren't designed to fix those broken systems and, and those broken policies. Um, but by bringing people into the room and not pointing fingers and starting to figure out where all the gaps in our system were, we were able to put together a plan to move forward. And what we did is we put together this written collaborative agreement and we had everybody that was in that meeting that could make policy change, come in and sign this document, basically attesting that they would agree to make these changes. And we initially started with this two-part approach, one being a pre and post-arrest diversion system. The pre-arrest, as I mentioned, is based on the CIT model, crisis intervention team policing, training police officers in a 40-hour program on how to identify people in crisis, how to de-escalate the situation, where to take people, and how to stop arresting. And just to bring you up to speed, because the documentary, by the time they filmed it and showed it in today, uh, is over almost a four-year period, um, has even continued to grow. We have over 7,600 officers trained in Miami-Dade County at all 38, uh, six of our departments. Um, in the last 10 years, two of our 36 departments that we kept statistics on, the two largest, they handled 105,000, 268,000 mental health calls over 10 years. And out of those 105,000 plus calls, they only made 198 arrests. They didn't shoot anybody. Nobody got killed. It was stunning. And as a result, the number of arrests in Dade County went from 118,000 to 53,000 before COVID. We also recently looked at the number of shootings in Miami-Dade. We looked at the five years before we did CIT training for the city of Miami, the five years after, and then the last five years. Before CIT training, there were 90 police shootings. The five years after CIT training, it went to 30. And the last five, which is 15 years later, is less than a handful of shootings over a five-year period. Stunning. And one of the things that we learned that we had not anticipated was the high level of PTSD among our law enforcement officers. Um, the woman that runs our program, who is amazing, that does the training, um, she gets 150 calls a month from police officers for their own personal mental health issues, 150 a month. And we realized they would not go to their departments for help. And so we actually set up a treatment program for them outside their departments so that we could help them get assistance. Last year, more police officers died from suicide than in the line of duty. They have high suicide rates, high domestic violence rates, high substance use uh, rates, and high divorce rates. And most of it is attributable to PTSD, and we do very little to help them get treated. And as a result of doing this, they've become extraordinarily empathetic. You're now the cool police officer. If you get punched by somebody with a mental illness and you don't arrest, you're the wimp if you get punched or touched by somebody with a mental illness and you do arrest. And we can see it in the data because they record the police injuries in the data as well. And it's much higher than the number of arrests. As a result of all these programs, and they have all expanded. And so the, the post-arrest diversion program uh, if you're arrested on a misdemeanor, we get you out of custody, usually within three days of your arrest. We send you to a crisis stabilization unit because they're on a criminal hold and not a civil hold. 
they actually reset the case in about 14 days, which is what most of these folks need. 72 hours, which all of our laws have on a civil case, has more to do about protecting people's rights to see a court or a judge if they're being held than it does with a treatment uh, plan. And so by resetting the case in 14 days, it really gives this uh, population an opportunity to stabilize and to help engage them. Um, we have several programs within our uh, programs. We have an assisted outpatient treatment program. We have an alternative to competency restoration program. Um, we work really hard with the community. We have a jail inreach program to expedite people's release. Our recidivism among our misdemeanor population went from about 75% uh, to about 20%. And our felony um, recidivism dropped from 75 to 80% uh, to about 20, 25%. Um, our jail has now been closed eight years which is an actual savings of 12 million a year. That's $96 million in real savings. The county has reinvested a lot of that money back into our system. Um, uh, the felony program has well over 84 years of jail bed days saved. Um, and instead of working right now, the county to build new jails, they're working right now to complete this mental health diversion facility, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. So I think that's probably a good place to stop. Um, it works. It's not rocket science. It's just about bringing the right people to the room that can make the system changes and begin the operation. And so I thought, General, maybe we would start uh, with a comment. Um, I've already looked. We've had several questions already, and I had a chance to go through them even before the documentary changed. But one of the main questions I've seen is, how do we do this in Minnesota? Well, with your inspiration, I think will make a big difference. Right now, Mayor Jacob Fry has convened a group uh, in the wake of last November's ballot measure on police reform, which failed but did get 44% of the vote. The question on the ballot was essentially, shall the police department be transformed into a department of public safety, which includes traditional policing, but also other measures such as mental health intervention, nonviolent uh, you know, violence reducers, you know, like average citizens who just de-escalate and, and, and as well as other things. And what people are always looking for is what works, what works, you know? And, um, you know, we've gone from, you know, uh, having tragic incidents between police and community to protests, to civil unrest, to studies and commissions. <laughs> and I think now everybody's about ready for some solutions. And so I think that what you have laid out uh, is extremely promising. And, you know, you've, you've talked about the positive benefits. I'll chuck in a few more. I bet your payouts for Section 1983 cases have gone down. Uh, I bet. Um, your trust between police and community has gone up. I bet officer wellness, I wonder what they would report. I bet you they're saying, look, we're, we're feeling better about our jobs. We're having better morale. And uh, I think it's, it's incredibly encouraging. Minneapolis wants to make some changes. Minneapolis doesn't know exactly what it wants to do, but we have the will to do it. And so I think that this comes at an extremely 
uh, opportune time. And I would say that uh, I'm making notes right now about how I can get a hold of that uh, documentary that was played because I'd love to see Mayor Fry and his committee see it. Uh, and uh, one last thing, if you don't mind, uh, Norm, it is clear that this issue of police community relations is not, cannot be solved with only dealing with police. It is an interjurisdictional, interagency phenomenon. At bare minimum, it's going to take police, prosecutors, and judges, and probably a good deal beyond that. So the fact that this is pulling different people from different spheres together is incredibly encouraging. Let me respond to that, uh, Keith, because I think you're exactly right. And you know, Minneapolis uh, has had some crisis intervention training uh, for police. It's yeah. a necessary but not sufficient condition. Right. You need to change the culture in the department, but it can't be done if it's an entirely antagonistic process. It has to be seen as a partnership. And that's what uh, Steve Leifman and his team have been able to do. One of the things that I would love to help with, and we would like to work with you on, is to do a summit of just the sort that Judge Leifman pulled together that maybe you could pull together. Um, and bring the different actors in the community together to try and create these partnerships. Um, what Miami shows is that it's doable and you can take people who are natural antagonists, the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, um, the uh, police and uh, often the uh, judges and find ways to have them all understand that this would be better for everybody. So if we could do that, um, it, it would be a, a minor miracle, maybe a major miracle. Um, and I think you're the guy to do it. Well, let me just say, I'm in. We'll get started right away. Let me ask you, Judge uh, Lipman, are you, are you up for this? You want to? Sure. You are a Miamian. I mean, it's kind of nice down there this time of year. I mean, well, we probably wouldn't do it in February, but uh, I'm, also, <laughs> I'm also half Minnesotan. My dad played... Uh, Ball at the University of Minnesota with Bud Grant back in the oh, day. Oh, wow. That's uh, I'm a, I have very serious Minnesota roots, as he would say. So anything we could do to help, I would be uh, happy to do so. Um, but you're right in, in what you asked earlier. Um, the city of Miami was actually able to get its bond rating improved because of the substantial reduction in police shootings. They were spending hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits from police shootings. And People often don't realize communities, cities, municipalities, counties, they're not, sell, they're, they're not insured against that. So whenever there is that kind of uh, shooting in a lawsuit, the payout comes directly from the taxpayers. And so when you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits, it hurts the bottom line, it hurts your bond rating, and it costs taxpayers more money to borrow money. And so by doing this, we saved city of Miami and county taxpayers hundreds and hundreds of million dollars bond rating reviews um, because it's reduced it so significantly. But also our police suicides are down, thankfully. Um, relationships between law enforcement and particularly family members with mental illnesses. Look, people would tell me that they would be afraid to call the police. They'd rather their family member beat them up than call law enforcement in because they were afraid it would go south and you know they would the loved one would get hurt or, or killed. And, and that doesn't exist anymore. Um, 
you know, one of the things that we did that was so helpful is we've appointed a liaison officer that CIT trained in every department in every substation. And as Norm said, it's not just about the traditional CIT training. They meet every month and every quarter with all of our providers. And, you know, we're a huge community, almost three and a half million people. And they'll bring a list and say, hey, I was at Steve Leifman's house six times in the last two months. He's not getting what he needs. And the provider will get on the phone and maybe send a mobile crisis unit right out to the house. And, and the police want to see that kind of response. And that's what helps get them to stop making the arrest when they have confidence that it's going to be helped and it's going to be resolved. And, and, and we listen. You know, there were little things, too, um, that we had to adjust to. We used to get all these cases um, where somebody with a mental illness would spit at a police officer and they would get charged with a second degree felony punishable by 15 years in prison. And wow. so we went to the police and we're like, hey, why are you arresting someone for spitting? And they're like, look, judge, we didn't want to do it. But and this is before COVID. It's even equally serious now. We were afraid of HIV transmission. And, and so the only way I could get a blood test is if I arrested them. And they're like, if you could get me a blood test at a crisis unit, I'll stop arresting. So what did we do? We changed the system. We set up a warrant process. They can call me anytime, 24 hours a day. I'll sign a warrant and have blood drawn at a crisis unit. And for the most part, they have stopped making those kinds of arrests. And it's about listening to each other, not getting mad at each other, understanding what's really going on and, and responding in a way that is responsive to everybody's needs. And, and hey, look, most of our officers don't wanna shoot people and they don't want to arrest people with mental illnesses, but they need alter, alternatives too. And the thing is, if they're suffering from PTSD and there are other race issues that may be involved, it's a toxic combination. And so we have to address some of those other issues as well so that we can lower the temperature and help people get, you know, everybody get the treatment that they need. Look, these illnesses just don't discriminate. And, and you could be a police officer, a politician, or a homeless guy with a serious mental illness. And, and we just need to do our best to get people the treatment that they deserve. So one of the you other, know, yes, sir. Oh, sorry about that. Go no, ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. You know, I just, I wanted to point out that one of the things about Minneapolis too, um, is that after the, uh, incidents in the aftermath of George Floyd, you know, uh, we, you know, we were kind of feeling like, wow, you know, we've been able to avoid these things on a massive scale, but now here we are. And I just want to say to anybody from Minnesota, Miami does not come from some crystal stare kind of experience, right? Miami, and let me just, and judge, I don't know if you were living in Miami at the time, but you might remember the it. Happy riots. I was here. Well, I was well, born well, here. We've had yeah, so more than our share. 1967 Christmas time. Yeah. I believe the guy's name was Walter E. Headley. He was the chief. He said when the, so people think Trump said when the looting starts, the shooting starts. No, that was an adopted yeah, phrase. That was uh, that right there, Miami. And so Miami uh, so we, we, we're trying, we're learning from people who actually know, <laughs> you know, they, they've been through it and they get it and they know, and they've decided that this, that, that the status quo of 1960, whatever, wasn't working out, <laughs> you know, and it's better to take some action. 
And so I just wanted to note that for folks who feel no, like I'm, this I'm, is I'm a really glad you situation. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you raised it because I was going to bring it up. We're no better. We're no smarter. You know, in growing up part Minnesota, and I always looked at Minnesota being much more progressive than South Florida. I mean, we were an old Southern community, white Southern community when I grew up. And um, it's just our demographics have changed substantially and we've yeah. broadened our thinking. But we also had something called the McDuffie riots. Right. Uh, gentleman, African-American. Uh, oh, yeah. Was pulled over on a motorcycle and was basically beaten to death. And um, it turned into a massive race riot for weeks. And, and so we none of us are immune from this and no one's better or smarter. And the, the key is sitting down and listening and, and, and making structural changes that people can see. And, there, and, there's hope, Judge. Yeah. I'm hearing you say we are not locked into some cycle. We, we can do some things to break that wheel. Absolutely. Let, let me make a couple of points, uh, if I might. One is, uh, I, I do believe that the city council, the mayor in Minneapolis, and I'm sure it's true in St. Paul as well, uh, really want to find solutions. Um, and one of the challenges always is that you can save a huge amount of money, but you've got to make an initial investment. Right. And there are sources of funding for this in the federal government, yep. in the Justice Department, in the American Rescue Plan, through SAMHSA, uh, the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. Um, and we need to make big efforts to get that money together. And one of uh, Steve Leifman's uh, magical talents has been to find resources across the board from uh, every political direction you can imagine. The second point I want to make, which comes out a bit in the documentary, but I think it needs to be emphasized even more, is you can't just do a diversion program uh, or an assisted outpatient treatment program for those with a serious mental illness, and especially those like my son, Matthew, who had, uh, as part of their brain disease, no awareness of being ill and no willingness to get uh, treated. If you just have somebody come to wherever they are once a week and say, here are your meds, you got to find housing and you yep. need these wraparound services, the peer support, the mental health support, the uh, social work support, uh, getting people back to their lives. And it's a system that's entirely broken and we need to focus not just on the criminal justice side of this, but on making profound changes in the way we deal with those with serious mental illness and making it so that even if you have police who wanna provide somebody who's in a psychotic uh, state with help, what if there's no bed except in the jail? We need to be yeah. sure that we also change a system that's been broken for many decades. Yeah, Norm touches on so many important points, but I don't want people to think that they need to have money to start. The first two years of our program, we didn't have a penny. We are a court system and we don't have resources for these issues. But what we found is there were already existing programs in the community. We A, either didn't know they existed or B, did not know how to access them. So there's already gonna be certain things in place. The key is putting together a system where the different uh, uh, high utilizer systems can then access those services. And that's exactly what we did. And that's what our initial written collaborative agreement did, 
and actually got providers to sign and say, yes, we will take this population. Yes, we'll hold them for two weeks. Yes, we'll start a different uh, structure and approach. And there was no accountability in the system. Nobody watches it. It's, it's worse than the stepchild system, right? And so there has to be greater accountability at the same time with measurable outcomes so that we know that people are getting what they need. Look, if we treated, treated people with primary health issues, the way we treated people with mental illnesses, not only would there be this plethora of civil lawsuits. I mean, if they discharge people with a hip operation in the middle of the night, which is what we do for people with mental illnesses, there'd be probably indictments from your office for gross negligence. But for some reason, because they have a mental illness, it seems like it's okay to treat people like garbage. Yeah. And we have to get away from that. And, you know, some of the questions, you know, that came through that were really great, you know, um, you know, is there a roadmap? Is there pathways? And, and one of the things I wanted to know that there's a new thinking going on and it's not there yet, but it's, it, we're getting there and we're actually putting this, you know, thought to, to pen to paper or computer any the way we do things these days. But, you know, that when certain people come into the criminal justice system, if they haven't committed a serious criminal offense and they don't have a serious criminal background, the case probably needs to be transferred to the civil system immediately. And we can do those kinds of things either ex externally or ex externally with law changes, but we have to start thinking about it differently because we know what works and we know that there are better ways to do what we're doing. And one of the other questions that came out and they, it was specific to Minnesota, they said one of the concerns that they had was that people had to take a plea to get treated. We don't do that in Miami. Uh, our programs are pre-adjudicatory. We don't think it's right that someone has to take a plea to get treatment. It's like telling someone with cancer, hey, we're only gonna give you cancer treatment if you agree to take a plea to your charge. We find that by leaving it open and giving the person the opportunity to go to trial anytime they want, it makes it easier for them to accept. And not one person has left our program to go to trial. And so you don't really need to get people to take a plea. And the idea is that we wanna decriminalize the issue. We don't want people leaving us with a record because once you're adjudicated guilty on a criminal case, it gets harder to get housing. It gets harder to get employment. You're more likely going to be hanging out with real criminals who are going to take advantage of you. And so we want to change that dynamic in a way that's going to be much more effective. And so any thoughts you had on that might be helpful. Well, I will point out a few things. While we don't have the operation you all have, which we I think we'd be tremendously better off if we did. We do have elements of it. So we learned a few years ago that there were a lot of folks who made a lot of visits to the ER at the, at the Hennepin County Medical Center. Mm -hmm. And we made an application to, medical, uh, to, to Medicaid, Medicare system to let us use some of the dollars for housing for the, some of the more frequent users. We put, some, we put those folks into housing and we found out that their visits uh, to the ER plummeted and uh, we were able to do medical surveillance on them so they could stay on their meds because a lot of times they wouldn't take it because they just didn't, they weren't in a mental condition to do so, right? But the thing that brought a tear to my eye, Judge and Norm, is when I visited these folks and talked to them and they said, 
yeah, for the first time in years, my mom will allow me to come to Thanksgiving dinner. I just was out of control. I, who knows? I might flip the table. I might, but so I kind of, we grew apart, but now I'm doing better and I'm feeling so much better. And so it is even the people who feel like this is a, a brighter day for them. And so we know, we know in Hennepin County and Minneapolis that housing's good medicine. So that's a piece of what you're saying. We, mm -hmm. we can pull that in. We've had diversion programs in our courts for years, uh, but we, we, have a, we have a mental health court, but it has a lot more to do with whether or not you can take a, you know, require a neuroleptic drug or a commitment. It's not really a criminal diversion mental health court like mm -hmm. you all are talking about. So my, my, my point is, it's not, I mean, we could do this, you know what I mean? It's, it's within the realm. There are pieces that we could just, what we really need to do is do some, do, do more collaboration. Mm -hmm. So I think it's well within and, you know, and I want to just tell you this, Norm, I've, you've sold me, I'm in, I'm going to, I'll engage uh, and do all I can, put my office behind it. I think it is, you know, it is the time for solutions. It is the time to start getting some things done. And um, I don't mind us talking about it as long as we're also doing something about it. Let's plan on uh, sometime in the early spring. I am. Okay. Uh, yeah. I will uh, uh, go a little bit further out and say that I have no doubt that uh, Larry, uh, Dean Coleman, and others at the university would be uh, willing to help facilitate. Oh, my, yeah. our, our Matthew Harris Ornstein Memorial Foundation and a lot of other supporters, some of whom I know have uh, been in this uh, watching in the program today will uh, help uh, in whatever way we can. And I know that Judge Leifman and his team will be happy to participate. If we can do something that eases the problems in Minnesota and turns it back into a model for the country of helping people, social justice, and improving uh, the lot of everybody in this system, uh, it would be an amazing accomplishment. Uh, and I'm just delighted that you'll be a part of it, Keith. Well, I'm excited. And so, uh, you know, I've already texted uh, the mayor. I'm waiting for him to hear back from him. I can tell you he's been a tremendous partner. He absolutely wants to do some things. Uh, he wants to do what, he wants to do the right thing though. You know, not just anything, but the, the right thing. And this is definitely uh, headed in the right direction. And I'll tell you, you talk to the sheriff, Hennepin County Sheriff, He'll say, man, I'm running a mental health facility that has a lock and key on it. You know, it is such, such, such a situation, but it's, uh, but this is very hopeful. And um, so uh, I'd also just like to add too, j just to put a little bit of framing on this, is that I think that our country, you know, a lot of the systems of policing we had really were founded and established and set up during a very different set of social arrangements than we have now. Back when we set up our systems of policing, you know, mental health, you know, people were just relegated to a, like a, like an institution. We did a lot, you know, race relations were in Jim Crow. We had a lot of things that, and, and but what we have not done is we have not updated our systems of safety and, and policing. And I think that what we've got to do now is to say, look, we're, we're moving into a new era where human dignity is looked upon very differently than it might've been 70, 80 years ago. And we can't just keep on pushing these old ways into the new moment, expecting a different result. 
Uh, and and I'll also add that uh, I'm very pleased that you mentioned the the challenge regarding uh, officer wellness. We have been really hit hard by that. In the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's death, a very large number of officers did report PTSD and uh, and 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 took leave because of it. And some people uh, who you might say they're cynical, you might say not. They say, oh, this is just a blue flu. And maybe some are, but I don't believe they all are. I, I, you know what I mean? I would say some of them are just like, wow. When you consider that the number of officers who engaged, who committed suicide after the January 6th matter, those guys were like personally devastated by what happened. And you can see how some folks after uh, 20, the summer of 2020 in Minneapolis personally devastated. They don't know how to make sense of the world anymore. We've got to take officer wellness seriously. And um, so that's another very promising element of, of what we've been talking about today. Yeah, you know, PTSD is physiological. It's not an emotional response. It's literally an overdose of cortisol to the brain. It comes through the pituitary gland and it's the system that our bodies use to protect ourselves. It's your flight or fight mechanism. And so you get a lot of law enforcement officers that are former military that already have trauma issues, that many of them are getting re-traumatized on the job. And then others are just getting traumatized on the job. And they're in one of the worst professions to go get help. And so it's incredibly, and there's some really good treatments out there for it these days. And so there's no reason not to help. And, and the way ours works is that as long as the officer is not homicidal or suicidal as a result of their mental health issue, we don't have to report it to their department. And, and it just gives them a lot of extra confidence. And we tell them this upfront so there are no surprises. And they appreciate it. You know, they shouldn't have guns if they're in that state of mind. And, and they understand. Um, but in most cases, they're not that severe, but we are getting them what they need. And it's really, really working. And one of the questions that came out asked to restate how we began with no money. Um, this is someone from a rural a community in Minnesota. And um, they're really you know, worried about lack of resources in, in the rural part of Minnesota. And um, there are, you know, particularly you know, one of the few things decent that came out of the pandemic, I guess, is the use of um, telepsychiatry. And, and there's no reason not to help those communities get greater access through communications to be able to serve people, or maybe even putting a room at, the, at an ER or a church that would make it easy for the police to take someone where there would be a screen and they could communicate with a psychiatrist and start to help them get services earlier and easier. Um, there are a lot of ideas. Florida is a big state also. People don't think of us as a rural, but we are in many ways like Minnesota. And, and it's critical for us to be able to think about new strategies um, for that population because for law enforcement, it could be a half day drive to try to get somebody services so they don't do it and they just arrest. And, and we have to look at some of the alternatives for them as well. Well, thanks, thanks for bringing that up. That to me is a particularly important point. We focus on Minneapolis now, it's the epicenter, but St. Paul, Duluth, all of the rural areas, the problems are, as uh, Steve just said, in some ways different as you move out to smaller towns and rural areas. Uh, the challenges may be different, but a lot of the solutions uh, can fit. 
um, you know, depending on the needs and the resources of different communities. So we need to think more broadly. Um, yeah, in some ways, they're more point. isolated than the yeah. um, urban areas, and, and the isolation makes matters so much worse. So we definitely need to reach out to some of those communities as well and make it easier for them to get services. Um, somebody also asked, what else can the federal government doing, be doing? And, and a part of the problem we see is that, you know, they're very narrow in what they will fund for services. And they make it more difficult sometimes. One of the keys to our success are our peers. We have eight peers, people with lived experiences that work for our program. Four of them graduated from our program. But many of them have to work part-time to be able to maintain their benefits, which is ridiculous. You know, they're struggling enough to be able to overcome their illness. They shouldn't lose their benefits if they work full-time as a peer. And, and, and so, you know, because the, these medications can be expensive, services can be expensive, and so they need their benefits. And so, you know, there are things that the federal government can be funding that are actually less expensive, like peer support services, um, that have greater outcomes. And, um, and we don't do those kinds of things, and it would be helpful if, if we did. Something else that is, is problematic for a lot of communities um, depending if your benefits are suspended or terminated when you're arrested makes a big difference. If they terminate your benefits upon arrest, it could take a year to get your benefits turned back on. And so you want to make sure your legislature, if you haven't done it already, uh, has a law in place that you're only suspending benefits because it's a lot easier to turn them back on as soon as they leave custody. And then they'll have the benefits they need to be able to receive the services you want them to receive. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to add that I think that uh, philanthropy in Minneapolis would be interested in helping pull some things together. Uh, I think that uh, you, and I also want to note, we, we did a report, which I'll put in the chat, uh, a year before George Floyd was killed. It's called the Working Group Deadly Involved, I mean, Police Involved Deadly Force Encounters, February 2020. George Floyd's killed in May 2020. We, uh, me and the Commissioner of Public Safety statewide pulled together a group, a diverse group and talked about these issues for about four or five months. We found two things that surprised everybody. One is that the majority of the deadly force encounters with police were in greater Minnesota. This is to your point, not in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And so that's, that's something that I don't think everybody really thought about, but because we think about the spectacular, highly urbanized thing. But the other one is that about half are people who were in a mental health crisis. So uh, that really opens the door. I mean, if we can shave off half of this problem or at least be addressing it, that is absolutely tremendous. St. Paul has dealt with some dual, excuse me, dual, dual response, uh, dual jurisdictional response police and mental health. They've reported some early promising results. Their program's not very old, um, but there's no question that, that uh, pulling a program together around mental health would work. And I would, I would be very, I, mean, I look forward to talking to Chief Judge Barnett about the possibility of participating. Um, you know, uh, Chief Judge Castro in Ramsey County 
you know, both of them are reform-minded guys, and I think they would resonate well. I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but I think they both would get it right away, and they're they're solution-oriented folks too. There is okay. a. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Norm. Oh, just I I want to mention as you talked about philanthropy in Minnesota, uh, two wonderful families, uh, Lynn and Andy Redleaf, and I think Lynn may have been on uh, uh, the uh, program today. Bruce Atwater and his family. Uh, contributed mightily to uh, helping put the documentary together, care a mm. great deal uh, mm. about these issues. And I'm sure that there are others. There are very few communities that have a philanthropic uh, uh, foundation uh, like Minnesota. Uh, so we can certainly get some support there. And I would just note finally that um, I've been hoping that uh, a number of champions of uh, reform of the mental illness system, the broken system uh, in Congress, and that includes Minnesota's own Amy Klobuchar um, uh, and Dean Phillips, but also um, uh, uh, the chair of the Appropriations Committee, Rosa DeLauro, uh, the chair of the subcommittee on uh, uh, health, Anna Eshoo, are deeply, deeply committed to making some of the changes that can bring us you know, the kinds of beds we need by ending the uh, terrible IMB exclusion that means that you can't really fund community mental health centers the way they need to be funded and provide those beds. So maybe we can get more action there as well. This has to happen at all levels, although it may start at the community. Well, you know, Norm, no doubt uh, as great programs like the one Judge Leafman's been talking about, as people get to know more about them, Congress has to step up and do their good part. Yeah. I mean, because there's no community that doesn't have this problem. I mean, there's no community, there's not one like, oh, uh, you know, uh, unfortunate, tragic interactions between police and mental health community, that never happens. Yeah, <laughs> right. It happens everywhere and all the time. And uh, the question is whether you're gonna do something about it or not. And, it, and it's not just our philanthropy community, our business community has stepped up oh, and yeah. you cannot imagine. Both our Downtown Development Association and our Greater Miami Chamber of Commerce have been phenomenally, phenomenally um, supportive of this and have helped us get additional resources from our legislature uh, for these programs. I also wanted to mention up, because I know we're out of time, uh, I sent uh, Larry and Leah, I think they're gonna post it, um, a list of all of our, uh, a description of all of our programs in Miami-Dade. It talks about how they're done, their success, because there's many programs within our programs. And uh, please take a look at that information and hopefully we'll get back to Minnesota soon. Hopefully they're in baseball or football season and uh, uh, we'll have an opportunity to uh, take this uh, to the next level and uh, anything we can do uh, to help, we're more than happy to do. And uh, General, we can't thank you enough for uh, your compassion, your thoughtfulness, and your willingness to participate. And Norm, it's always uh, 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 just a treat to hang out with you and talk to you more about these issues. And thank you for what you and Judy have done to help promote this issue as well, if not more than anybody in the country. So thank you. Thanks, Let Judge. Thanks, Norm. Thank you, Keith. And let me finally say, anybody who wants to watch this film or share it with others, you can find it at doifilm.com. It's free and available, DOI for definition of insanity, doifilm.com. I actually sent the link to Larry and Leah and they're gonna post it. Okay. Great. Larry, Great. did you wanna close us out? 
just want to thank everybody. This is an incredible conversation. It's rare to actually have such a deep conversation with on a very serious issue in which there's light of hope. Um, so I want to thank everybody. Keith, uh, thank you so much for joining us and the leadership you're providing. Uh, Judge Leafman, um, you know, it's what you're doing um, is what we need at this moment when there's so much anguish. And Norm, thanks so much for um, really raising this, uh, the idea for this program today and, and the way you've taken the tragedy you've experienced and, and really tried to uh, bring compassion and, and really concrete direction. Thank you. Thank you all. Take care. Thank you.